Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. We got a very special guest this week. We got a face and a voice and some biceps that all of you (laughs) all probably recognize. A Tennis Channel colleague of mine, always at at the slam, somehow weasels his way into the player dining. Even though he's not supposed to be there, he's supposed to be with the media. Uh, but a friend on tour, uh, tennis legacy royalty, if you will, uh, Prakash Amitraj. Welcome to the show. My brother, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. I, I got so much love for you. I've been listening to you on the podcast, seeing you on TV, bringing all that beautiful insight. So a uh, pleasure for me to be on. Hey, man. Well, you know, you it's, it's not the kind of legacy insights you bring. So you grew up in a tennis family. Like, you know, what I find good and bad with tennis, it is like such a small sport, very incestuous. And when I got involved, I was like, man, there's another brown dude in this game. <laughs> he must know somebody, right? <laughs> and then you find out that your dad uh, is VJ Armitage, right? Obviously the legend. Tell us about growing up in that house. You know, it's, it's, look, as a kid, you only know the experiences that you know, you know, it, it was, it was crazy, especially going back to India. It was, it was something else, you know, pop, everyone looked at pops in a, in a completely different way. I mean, I guess it's, it's the closest thing to, uh, you know, that I could imagine to what, you know, it was like for, for a Michael or a Kobe, you know, at their height, I'm talking about pop specifically in India, just yeah. because he meant so much to the culture and, and what he did. So it was kind of, all I knew, but now obviously having a different perspective and looking back and seeing, you know, baby pictures of, of, of Boris Becker carrying me and, 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 you know, all sorts of celebrities and so forth. Um, you know, you realize that you live, you live quite a different life, but it was, it was all I knew. And uh, I think I, I got to show so much love to my dad, who was just my absolute best friend in the world. It's not a thing I haven't shared with him throughout my entire life, but as far as my relationship to tennis, he did such a brilliant job of never forcing me in like we see so many tennis parents do. So he allowed me to develop my own love for it. So everything that I do in tennis from, you know, the playing, the working hard to the storytelling now, it all comes from like the most beautiful love, which I, I couldn't be more thankful for. See, I was gonna ask that question because in my house, you know, I got three kids and tennis is mandatory. Now you don't okay. have to go crazy and play super nats and, you know, go San Diego, you know, girls 16s and 18s and Kalamazoo. You don't have to do all of that, but you got to have some knowledge, right? So my daughter and I, 17 years old, going to college. Uh, and I remember from September 9th of 2017 to September 6th of 2018, she didn't hit the ball. The year after Sloan won the U.S. Open, right? We go out to dinner. Everybody's like, oh, your dad's come out. You must be so good. <laughs> right and she just couldn't deal with 
the assumption that, oh, your dad's in tennis at this level, you, you're so good. So when you were growing up, did you have that where it was like, oh, your dad's VJ, you must be so good. Oh, just, just, I mean, truckloads and truckloads. And, you know, it goes, it goes both ways. My father always said this throughout my entire juniors, especially. He said, listen, the, the, the good news is I'm your father, but the bad news is I'm your father. And, you know, like, like anything, there are always pros and cons to everything. I mean, I remember when I first came on the tour, you know, I had done some stuff in juniors, you know, I won the 18th at Kalamazoo, got to play the U.S. Open. We won a national title at USC. I was MVP in the finals as a freshman. And, you know, I, I, I had a few accomplishments and just started on the tour. And, you know, before social media, there used to be forum boards, you know, on the Internet. And, oh, man, I, I, I became a real victim to what others think for a minute, because that's when I really got to see for the first time, oh, he'll never be as good as his father. Oh, he's not like this, he's not like this. And you realize it's, it, it's nothing that you did, but it's something you have to learn to deal with. And you know, now looking back, I mean, uh, this might be something we get into later, but as developed as my game was, I think psychologically, I didn't put in enough work on, on the psychological end. And now, uh, sure, I, I'm, I'm a much more mature individual, and have grown and hopefully five years from now I'll be a lot more grown than I am and evolved now. But looking back, I look at that as something I didn't necessarily handle that well. And, you know, like you said, pluses and minuses everywhere. So where did the weightlifting come in? Because one of the first times I met you, you had on these like, you know, dress pants, <laughs> polo shirt, sleeves were too short on purpose, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, like real big at the top, skinny waist, skinny at the bottom. I'm like, this dude's just eating weights. I'm like, he's not a tennis player. He, 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 can't, he can't even get any extension on the forehand and get the ball to the baseline. So when did the weightlifting become part of like your story? Because I don't know if you know that, right? But in the, in the, on the player side and on the coach's side was like, yeah, that dude can't play. He too big. <laughs> he's bigger than any player on tour. It, you know, it really came, I guess, when I when I finished playing, because I was I was obviously a lot leaner and and you know more flexible when I was when I was playing. I worked hard, but just not in the lifting weights. And then when I stopped playing, it was at the end of 2013. Um, I had a pretty comprehensive shoulder surgery. I had a torn labrum, torn rotator cuff, and two bone spurs. They had to show down, um, a shave down rather. Um, Doctor Keith Fader, great doctor, did a Safin's wrist uh, before he came back and won the Australian Open. Um, he did my surgery out in Manhattan Beach. And um, that's sort of when I decided to hang it up. And, you know, you'll know this because look, I know you are, you know, as hard work an individual as, as it gets. And, you know, when you're used to training six, seven, you know, eight hours a day and having everything regimented, it was impossible for me to give that up. You know, I'm, I'm going to end up doing a lot of things in my life, but on my tombstone, it's going to say athlete, you know, because that's, that's, that's all I know. It's in my blood. So even now when I do whatever I'm doing, whether it's you know, the business, the, the, the movies, the TV, the, the, the broadcasting, whatever it is, it has to be structured in a certain way for me to be able to unleash my best. So, I mean, uh, come on. I mean, uh, you know, even on the road, I mean, I have my weighing scale. I'm on a, you know, program. My coach adjusts it based on, you know, what I'm trying to achieve. And every meal is prepped. You know, my workouts are regimented based on I'm bulking, cutting. And then, you know, so I, I kind of need that to be my best. And then, you know, I have lots of aspirations on the, on the film and TV side of things too. And, you know, we've never, we've never seen someone of my ethnic background 
in Hollywood do the things that I grew up wanting to do and see. You know, I, you know, you see, you know, Will Smith, Bad Boys, these kind of things. It never for someone of my culture. You know, an Indian is always playing an Indian, right? But I'm I'm born here, right? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm an American. You know, uh, you know, someone from a different ethnicity. It's just they've been here longer, right? So there really shouldn't be a difference. So it's it's part of the larger message I'm trying to I'm trying to create and throw out there too. So you actually had a good junior career, right? Won a zoo, went to USC, and then you go to the tour, right? And a lot of people, you know, college players who successfully made the transition, Stevie J, John Isner, right? But a lot don't, right? And a lot, you know, they 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 win NCAAs, or even they just don't win NCAAs, but top 10 in the country, they make that transition. And they get to tour and somebody just beats the shit out of them, right? And it's like, welcome, little fella. Yeah. Who was the per who was the first person to just beat you down when you were transitioning to tour and was like, oh, you thought this was college, little boy? I don't care uh, who daddy is. I'm your new daddy. Who's that? <laughs> Who's you person? know what the good news is, Kamal? I don't have to think long. I'll tell you exactly who that is right now. <laughs> uh, I left I left school uh June 2003, right? I went and played a satellite in India. Back before futures, there were satellites, right? right. I, I tore it up. At the end of the uh, uh, four legs, they said the last man to dominate this uh, circuit, this uh, big, was Tim Hendon. You know, Prakash is on his way. Uh, I qualified and won a match in Indianapolis. You know, I started, I started feeling myself. Became India's number one in a few months. So I'm like, okay, I'm playing Davis Cup. Who is our first Davis Cup match against? It is a world group qualifying match against the Netherlands. And they happen to have two top 10 players in Martin Verkirk and Sheng Schalken. <laughs> so I'm drawn to play Sheng Shalkin. This is like uh, a week after he had just made the semis and lost to Pete in 2002 at, uh, oh no, uh, yeah, I believe, no, 2003, he made the semis. And uh, um, he, he, I forget who he lost to in the semis there. Anyway, we play each other in Netherlands. And like 10,000 people wearing orange shirts going bananas. And I got waxed so badly in that match. And he had the most awkward game. He played everything like sideways and flat. I, I had no answer. So that's when I realized it's, I mean, sure, playing well is fine, but it's more, you know, uh, thinking on your feet and problem solving. And, and, there, and as we always talk about, there are levels to this. So he was, uh, he was the one. He was the one who gave me my first big lesson on tour. <laughs> now, you mentioned that you were like, you know, the Indian number one, right? The best player in India. That ain't that hard to do because there's yeah. not necessarily a long legacy and a long plethora of people who come out of India. Yeah. So given the fact that you, you know, obviously come from a small sort of tennis country and it achieved that success, we normally see people with that sort of background go into Davis Cup coaching, hitting partner or coach, right? Especially, you know, being one of the few in your, with your uh, descent. So why did you not go that route and then go right into commentating? Um, well, you know, I was born and raised here. So, you know, when I, when I got to that point, I think I had just, I'd heard so many stories of, you know, dad's Davis Cup heroics and, and, you know, the tradition and the roots. And look, again, I'm kind of pull back away from tennis here for a minute, but I'm a first generation son of an immigrant, right? So you know, just going away from sport for a minute, you always have that pull where sometimes you, you, you're not sure 
you know, where you really fit in and belong. You know, over here, you're, you're not American enough. You know, you're seen as Indian. Over there, you're not Indian enough. You know, when I'd win in the papers, it was always India's Prakash. When I'd lose, it was American-born Prakash, you know? <laughs> so you're, 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 you're balancing and dealing with this. But at the same time, I'm, you know, as, as much as I have the Indian roots, I'm, uh, you know, West Coast hip-hop and grew up on death row and as L.A. as it comes. So it, it's a beautiful mesh of cultures. So maybe that's perhaps one of the reasons I, I, I didn't go down that path. And look, growing up, it was always, it was always movies and tennis. And you know, tennis took over because I, I became good. So it was always something I wanted to get into next. So the minute I hung up the tennis racket, you know, I dived straight head into head first into acting and, and trying to build up our production company and so forth. And and the broadcasting was really, it was really just a blessing, you know, from God. I kind of just I was focused on the acting, started to do some stuff. I did a big showcase for NBC and some things, and then. An opportunity came up, um, you know, I commentated on our tennis league in India, the Champions Tennis League that we, we threw. We had some great, great people come. I know you remember that. And um, then Star TV wanted me to do Wimbledon for a couple of years. That was awesome. Learn how it all worked, you know, running around doing interviews on site. And then I did some stuff for BN Sports. I covered Wimbledon again. And then, uh, and then out of nowhere, um, uh, Nitin Varma, actually, at, at Tennis Channel, called me, asked me to do a one-minute clinic. So I did the one minute clinic and then slowly by slowly, I started doing a little bit more at Tennis Channel. I did, I did some court reports. I did some college match days, did some commentary. And then it just kind of, it grew from there. But, uh, but I will say the, the big opportunity, which I will just be forever grateful for was uh, Bob Wiley and, and Ross Schneiderman asked me, say, you know what? We want to do an experiment. We've never done this before. 2018, the O2 finals, we want to send you there with a crew and, you know, we want you to do standups. We want you to do interviews and, and just, just go to town. And that was, that was a huge risk, you know, that they took and a giant, giant opportunity. So like, like anything else, I just, you know, I, I, I sunk myself into it, just did, you know, completely overboard with everything that I could possibly deliver. And it was, it was such a joy because I had played with most of these guys before. So to be able to help shine a light on all of their stories and help bring that to the forefront, man, there was nothing like it. And then it, it kept growing from there. And uh, I, I feel ashamed to say that I'm even getting paid because it's not, it's not really work. You know, it's just been, it's been such a blessing. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. So you talk about your career in acting, right? And your dad was one of the few tennis players to actually be able to transition and have a successful acting career. By successful, I mean the brother was in James Bond, right? Yeah. And Star Wars, which yeah. were two of the biggest Star movies. Trek, Star Trek, yeah, Star yeah, Trek, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, right? Yeah. One of the, the biggest movies there, especially for a brown person, right? So I like, you know, I call Indian people brown, right? We're black and brown. So absolutely, you know, at the time where there weren't really a lot of brown actors penetrating sort yeah. of that zero right he obviously had the tennis thing we gave him a little more cachet but acting was also in your blood so is that sort of your ultimate thing because i do see the prakash that's in the gym eating those weights 
Then I see the Prakash behind the camera with the microphone and you like transition into like a totally different person. Is that where it kind of from? Have you ever taken acting classes? Oh my God. I, I'd probably say it's the thing that I've trained the most in outside of tennis. Uh, yeah, serious, serious studio work that I did over here and, and really sunk myself into it. Um, like anything else, you know, I'm, I find great comfort in the work you put in. And, you know, when it comes time to execute, deliver, whatever it may be, the more work you put in, the more comfortable you feel. So I think that just applies to absolutely anything. So, so yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been in a, a lot of strong classes here. Um, a couple of years ago also, there's nothing like on-ground performance training too, you know, really just being in it. So we produced a movie a few years ago, uh, my father and my company, which starred Jamie Dornan from Fifty Shades of Grey, the main guy there, uh, Ben Mendelsohn, who won an Emmy, he's been in Star Wars, a bunch of different things. Billy Crystal was in it, I was in it. And we had a spotlight world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival, super cool. But that experience of being on set every day, seeing how everyone worked, especially Ben Mendelsohn. I, I learned so much, I, I would say I learned more from him on set than even being in a class. And honestly, a lot of it helps translate into uh, the storytelling that, that you and I do, you know, on, on Tennis Channel to be able to, illustrate you know the stories of certain people because I feel like the media especially in the past you know it's, it's always been about a few people and our sport is so rich with so many beautiful stories you know and and the more life we can bring to those stories then all of a sudden you know all the players outside of the top five top ten are getting fans and when those people get fans that's when the sport grows you know our sport is so rich and I, I don't think we've even tapped into the surface of all the beautiful things that we can see. But I think one of the problems, right, and opportunities, one of the problems with our sport is that normally in a tournament, there's only like four people that get the mic, right? Yeah. Champion and the finalists on the men's side, champion and finalists on the women's side. Maybe somebody will watch doubles, right? This year they watched Nick and Kakanakis win some doubles, but normally, eh, normally, look, those two boys fill the whole stadium for a doubles final. Yeah. Even the Bryan brothers, in a single session was not yep. feeling Arthur Ashe, right? Or Margaret Court, you know what I'm saying? So I think that the, one of the things that we've got to solve with the sport is the fact that you have a grand slam where you got 128 men in singles, 128 women, and two people get the mic, right? I mean, yes, we have press day, right? If you go dig for the media interviews, you can find them, but you got to dig. But in general, it's the last day and those are the people you get to know. And when you think about men's tennis being dominated by the big three for so long, that's one of the things that prevents the story of the dude that's 26 in the world, right? Or the Tommy Paul who didn't even get offered a full scholarship in North Carolina, got offered a partial scholarship, right? right. It's hard for those stories to come out because you could be top 20 in the world or even top 10 and never win a title, right? right? Which means you never get the microphone. You know what I'm saying? So how do we kind of solve that? Obviously at Tennis Channel, we're doing more storytelling, right? But in general, I think we got to figure out a way during the slams or during some of the, you know, the premier fives or whatever it is to tell everyone's story, right? Even the guys that make quarters. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, look, I think there are two things uh, and then it's all sort of little spider webs off of that. One, of course, is Tennis Channel is just, you know, they, they are they're such a good bearer of the honor of the sport, right? It's, it's you know, I, I just went and did a feature in Houston, which I cannot wait for everyone to see. Another brilliant story, 
that's that's mined from this sport. So Tennis Channel is very focused on that. I think that's brilliant. You know, the more the more the media can do that, it's it's so great for the sport. But to your point, I think a little bit of this Kamal is the nature and the history of the sport and what it sort of allowed players to feel like it's okay to do and behave and say, right? People can say what they want about Nick. I've always been very, very vocal about how much I love the dude. I think he's got a, I think he's a great dude. He's got a huge, huge heart and he's great for the game, right? Now look, with his talent, yes, it's no doubt. Even Rafa said it. He, he could absolutely have been challenging for world number one and be winning slams, right? right? So, so, so the talent is there, okay? But what he's doing is he is unadulterated being himself. You may hate him, you may like him, but he, he's brave enough to feel free to be able to do that. I think if we can create an atmosphere where more people can feel free to actually be themselves with less judgment, I think we're gonna see a lot more. Dad talks about the golden era of the 70s, right? It was when tennis was at its height. And the prize money in tennis and golf was very different. The hundredth guy in tennis was making what the tenth guy in golf was making then. Now it's flipped. The hundredth guy in golf makes more than the tenth guy in tennis. And golf has done such a good job of just growing, growing, growing the eyeballs. But in the 70s, think about it. Yes, you had your Borg, you had your McEnroe, you had your Connors. But outside of that, you had, you know, you had your Vetus, you had you you had pops you had uh, uh you had a lot i mean Vilas was a poet you had all these different personalities that everyone knew and wanted to follow it was it was a bit more of a free time and mm-hmm. i think i mean look it's a, it's a tough time in society now too it's like you got to watch every single thing you say so especially as players when you know you're you're looking for endorsements you're looking for other ways to uh, you know make income you do have to be careful also so it's a fine line but i'd like to see more of the player has shown. I think that's what will make it more relatable and, and bring in fans who are not just tennis fans, but more pop culture, everyday fans. Well, let me ask you this, right? Because I think that, you know, I grew up in Chicago, right? Back in the Michael Jordan time. And, you know, Michael Jordan is famous for having his off the court activities. And, you know, there's a book about the Jordan rules, right? And yep. basically talked about how the league protected Michael Jordan as a star, as the face of the league. Now you see a lot of people, uh, players come out and either opt out of opt out of press and say, I'll take the fine, right? You see them just sort of do a bad job in it, right? Yeah. What you say, not answer the questions, one word answers, try not to be as revealing. How do we as, you know, on this side of the camera, right? Because I would say as a coach, right? One of my fears is, your player wins a slam 2017, okay? Go back to that same slam in 2018. I can almost give you the first five questions. Number one is, no one's defended the U.S. Open title in 25 years, no woman, other than Serena. What do you think your chances are? And that player says, well, shit, I thought they were great until you said that, right? You know what I mean? So even as the coach, it's kind of like, well, yeah, don't go do press because they're going to ask you some things that are going to disrupt the belief that everybody's tried to build in you leading into the tournament, right? Um, I feel like we got to do a better job behind the camera where it says, okay, we need all the players to do press. So here's what we're going to do. Let's get the questions ahead of time so that these players can be better prepared, right? Let's 
exclude the reporters who historically ask terrible questions or try to hang the players, right? And let the player give that list, hey, I'll come do the press. I don't want this person, that person, this person, right? The media will say that takes away the authenticity of the interview if we give them the questions ahead of time, right? But as a league, we say, this player is uncomfortable doing press. We want to see them behind the camera. We either do it this way or it doesn't work. Where do you think we find the balance? Because from the player standpoint, they need you to press. They need to grow their brand. They don't understand. I don't know if they all understand how press equates to dollars for them, right? And from our standpoint, behind the camera, we need the soundbite. We need the interview. We want to get to know you, right? We want to have some pre-match content to make this tennis match, which sometimes can be boring, a little more interesting with some clips from your interview. Where do we find balance? Well, come on, you just said a whole lot of stuff over there. And I got, I got all sorts of opinions on, on all that stuff. Um, look, I, 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 let me preface this by saying one thing. I was, uh, I was chatting with uh, Daniel Medvedev's agent, uh, Ali Van Lindock, who, who I know you know, um, with Garbine Mugurutha also. And, uh, and Ali said something, he was joking, and he was like, yeah, you know, media should be over here. And I looked at him, I was like, media? What did you call me? You know, <laughs> because I just, I can't not see myself as a player. You know, on, on the player side, sure, of course, we're, we're on me in media, but we're like, that's how you always see it, you know? So having said that, prefaced with that, I'm kind of l- always looking at stuff from the player's perspective, you know? I mean, everyone has a positive story to tell out there. You know, I, I feel like a lot of media come into it and their goal is to literally make the player look bad or they're coming in there to make themselves the star. You know, when it's, it's not about them. Let me ask the worst question I can get. So this question is replayed everywhere. You know, I mean, Rafa Nadal is the nicest, most humble human being in the world. I have literally seen him walk out of a press room when a guy asked a ridiculous question. And this, it, it's just, it's, it's, I mean, it was, an, it was a real asinine question. And, and for Rafa to do that. So I think there's responsibility on both sides, right? I mean, it's a very interesting concept you brought up about you know, maybe some, some media uh, people aren't allowed in, in certain spots, but where do you make that judgment? You know, I mean, as a, as a media person, look, you only get certain amount of opportunities to be able to ask questions, especially to the, to the higher ranked players. You know, you may have more access, you know, with the lower rank, but, you know, it, it's a relationship uh, like anything else, come out. You know, trust, trust is earned. So, you know, maybe in the beginning, the player's not as open, you know, you have a little interaction. The second one, maybe if the trust is a little bit better, they open up a little bit more. I always feel a player opens up as much as they feel comfortable. So you notice some interviews, the player is just like a completely different person, you know, because maybe there's a little bit of trust. Um, And I think that's when the good things happen because players want to get people to know them. You know, they want their good side to come out, but they're not going to do that if you you know, whatever you're asking, automatically they, they put up their guard. So I guess, I guess the answer is somehow creating a comfortable environment for, for all the parties so, so, that, so that forum can happen, you know? Yeah, you know, um, when I'm coaching a player and they're going to press, I always ask who's, gonna, who's doing the interview. And if it's somebody that I know, and I was coaching a woman, right? And there's still like that male-female dynamic, right? Yeah. And I coach mostly women, right? So I'll say, I'll go with you. Just so that there's a presence there to yeah. say, don't ask no bullshit. Absolutely. Right? Because Absolutely. whatever you, you know, 
like we saw on, on the court with Muhammad and Nick Kyrgios. A conversation can change a mindset. Yep. And an interview question and an answer is a conversation. And if as a coach, I'm obviously we're working on technique, strategy, whatever, but also working on your mindset. I need okay. to go in that room and make sure that nobody disrupts the mindset that we've tried to create on the airplane ride, on the car ride, the hotel, the dinners, all that kind of thing. So, you know, I'm always asking, all right, who's the interview with? Okay, yeah. great. I don't think it's a bad thing for our biggest stars, who a lot of them are young, 17, 18, 19. They may not have had the length of media training relative to who's doing the interview. You know, Ben yeah. Rothenberg is a seasoned journalist, right? And you put him in front of a 17-year-old phenom and he could eat him alive, right? He could ask these questions, the question they don't want to answer. He could rephrase it two or three different ways and catch them, Absolutely. right? Uh, and not necessarily him per se, but just anybody, right? And so I am for protecting the personalities and protecting the faces of our sport, even if we lose some authenticity of the interview. Because at the end of the day, we want the interview to happen. Everybody wants the money to grow. So let me ask you this. One of the reasons that Prakash Worldwide is possible is because of that trust that you talk, that you spoke about, right? One of the reasons why, you know, this podcast is, is, is possible because of that trust, right? I sat down with Elise Mertens in Chicago a couple months ago. This is a player. This is one of those instances where not enough people get the microphone, okay? Yeah. The girl's been to the round of 16 of every Grand Slam, won a couple doubles Grand Slam, quarters of, I think, three of the four Grand Slams, and I sat across from her, and I've been coaching for seven years on tour, and have played her in two slams in a row, two US Open in a row, right? Yeah. I was like, wow, this is the first time I heard your voice. Think about that. I said to her, the first, I said, you know what, this is the first time I've heard your voice. That shouldn't be. And I'm talking about cafeteria, hotel, lobby, elevator, interview. <laughs> Never heard her speak, because we don't get the microphone. And then to hear her talk, when it came around, I said, damn, I didn't know you could talk like that. She says, oh, I trust you. Literally, it was like joking. Oh, I trust you, right? So we've got to figure out a way to establish that. So you obviously have- so, so, Sorry, just, just to jump in for a sec there, Kamal. You're, you know, as you said, you know, you, you've been in the trenches on the player side. So, you know, the players are always going to see you with that trust. And look, man, that's everything. I, th I think that's everything. Even the best journalists over time who have not, been in the sport on the player side, either as a player or a coach, they built that trust, you know, and then all of a sudden you see, I mean, look, uh, look at, look at Michael Jordan and Ahmad Rashad, you know, he was, he was his guy, you know, I mean, Ahmad was, I've seen pictures of them in the gym together, on the golf course together, cigars together. And when he needs to tell something, I mean, especially when that gambling thing came out and you know what, he needed to speak after, after his, his father was, was tragically taken away. And he said, you know what, Ahmad, go get the camera. Because at that crucial moment, he's like, this is the only guy I'm willing to even say this in front of. And that's, of course, on the extreme of the true trust, but exactly what you're saying. And, and, and that's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So let me say, so you've had some great interviews because of that trust. 
Appreciate that. Tell me about your most memorable interview. Oh man. Um, well, there's okay. There's been some fun ones. I guess the the top two I got to go to are are with with Venus and Serena, who who I have you know a personal relationship with. We're we're friends. We we definitely spent a, a lot of the times together, um, and we're and we're very close. And in Rome, I'll never forget this. Uh, I'll tell you two two quick stories. In Rome, 2019, I think. And uh, you know when Serena's in a tournament, she's like this, right? So she's you know she's not doing much press, you know all, all this stuff. So um, it was a packed room of uh, media people in Rome, uh, you know, on that second floor there outside the yeah. center court. And um, and she had declined all media, but she's like, okay, so I'll I'll, I'll come and do press. So I'm like, all right, where are we doing it? And the the WTA liaison said, oh, we're gonna do it right in the media room. So we were doing it in the front of the media room. There was like 200 people there who weren't getting the interview, <laughs> and they saw me doing it over here. And I was trying to be serious. And we've had some goofy times together. So I, I, I break, I'm super serious. I, you know, Serena, you know, it looked like you were you know, struggling with the knee the last couple of months, but you look great out there. You know, how'd you feel? Just, just complete serious. She completely loses it laughing. And I'm like, see, see, I'm trying to be serious. And look at her. She is just completely cracking up. That happens like three times. She cannot keep a straight face. The liaison finally says, Serena, we got another player coming. If we can't do this now, this interview is not going to happen. She finally got it together. And she's like, tell the camera, oh my God, I'm sorry. I've known him forever. I can't do this. She, I mean, she's like c swallowing the laughter and, and manages to finish the interview. But that segment was, it was better than the interview. You know, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was beautiful. Um, and, then, and then once in Cincinnati, Venus had just beat the defending champ. Uh, in 2019, I, I want to say Kiki Burton's. Um, I'm trying to remember who won it in 2018, and then uh, Venus beat her first round in 2019. I could have the name wrong. I think um, I think it was Kiki. So yeah. three, uh, Venus won like this this crazy three set match. You know, I, I'm I'm sitting in the box. I'm supposed to be unbiased. I shouldn't be sitting there. And then afterward, she comes and does an interview. She's in such a good mood, and I start asking her these questions. And then in the middle of the interview, she goes, "Okay, well, guess what? It's my turn now." I've seen all these interviews with Serena. Now I'm going to have a great fun, a little fun with you. She grabs the mic and she starts asking me the questions. <laughs> and then she, she brought up this costume thing where I had these 80s tiny shorts on. She made me blush. <laughs> she made me laugh. It was, it, was, it was all bad, but it was just, it was a blast. Those, those are probably the two most memorable that, that I can say. See, the, the tight pants isn't like a 2018 and beyond thing. You've been wearing tight pants your whole life. <laughs> <laughs> and she did. She did, she did not let me forget it. But yo, come on, while we're on the subject of both them, I will just say, having been fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with them and their family um, and, and a few conversations with their, with their magnificent father also, I, you know, it's changed my life, like, like knowing them so well. And even the, the philosophy that, you know, that I preach my whole, what's your code that I go back to colleges and speak at and everything, it really, so much of it developed from when I really started spending a lot of time with them. They've, they've really just been like a, a real blessing in my life. Yeah, now the, the whole family, from Isha to Orsine. Oh, yeah. Orsine, I say, is uh, very quiet. But when she speaks, it's like something of substance. Yeah. You, you listen. I mean? yeah. Like I remember, I would say Wimbledon 2016. And Sloan lost first round. But, you know, like we discussed, she was injured or whatever like that. But Aura seeing she comes and she says, uh, she walks by, she taps, she says, you're doing a good job. Right. I was like, thanks. We're going to beat your ass in the next round. You know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> I, remember, 
I remember it was Sloan was gonna play. No, she she uh, was gonna play Kuznetsova okay. to play Serena, right? Okay. And Sloan should have won the match. She was up like serving for the match, up for love, whatever. Um, and I think that year she had won three tournaments. She had won Auckland. She won uh, Acapulco, and she had won Charleston all in three months. And she was like, "You're doing a good job." I was like, "Thanks." It's like coming for you next round. Um, but anyway, like I was like, just like real, always positive. And I mean, competitive and positive at the same time, right? Not competitive to the point we're wishing bad on anybody, right? But always encouraging because I think they knew they was like, you don't have to fail for me to win. Right. right? What I do was going to allow me to win. So I'm not going to be negative or, you know, unnecessarily competitive with you guys and what you got going on over there. It's just, hey, you know, good luck with doing what you're doing. We're doing this over here. So I I would say they've been a good inspiration to a lot of people and kept a lot of people going just with a kind word here, a kind word there. Real great to the game. So we talk about you traveling now and you travel differently than most, right? You know, you get to pick your hotel, you get to pick your restaurants. You know, when I travel, as long as it's like not disruptive to the tennis and to the practice and organizing the actual tournament, you know, the coach stays where the player stays, right? Mm-hmm. We eat what the player want to eat. You want to mm-hmm. eat rash do seven days in a row. What we eating rash do seven days in a row. Right. Okay. Um, so what's your favorite stop on the tour now? Okay. I'm going to ask you uh, out of three things. Uh, my favorite stop as a, a, a broadcaster or as just a city to visit, or uh, a stop on tour like like having played. Oh no! Forget about your playing days. I'm talking okay. about now as a broadcaster, where you are experiencing the city uh, after the cameras are done. You got your night free. You know, this is going to sound really boring because I've you know I, I get to go all over the world. But um, actually, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna cut myself off right there. My favorite place in the world is 100% Italy. It is without a doubt Italy. And anywhere, because I've spent time in Milan for the next gen finals. Rome is magnificent. And then last year I got to go to Turin for the world finals there, which by the way, I forget the name, but uh, Malka, who is our tennis channel liaison with the players who everybody absolutely adores, literally haven't met one person that doesn't love this woman. uh, She recommended to me, the single best sandwich shop I've ever had in my entire life in Turin. This place had like a mile and a half long uh, uh, line and I'll, I'll never forget that. But Italy, it, it has to be Italy. I just can't decide on the city. I'll probably say Milan because even last year I had a week off in between Paris and the finals in Turin and I wasn't going to come back to LA. So I'm like, all right, where am I going to go in Europe? I actually went to Milan. I just hung out in Milan, went to the next gen a couple of days. So I'll probably say uh, I'll probably say Milan in Italy. I've I've heard that from a number of players. <laughs> it's got that it's got the right mix of like the modernness, but still the the beautiful oldness of Italy. I went over there and had you know did the whole barber shave, spent like an hour, had espresso while they did the whole thing. Of course you did. It's a, of course you did. It's a vibe pretty, over there, pretty boy. Of course you did. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so 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 onto the tennis, right? I would say the past two, almost going on three now, right? The COVID years have been tough on tennis, right? I would say our sport is one that prior to COVID didn't know how much we needed the fans, 
right? I mean, you know, watching a tennis match with no hand claps, no nothing is rough. Can be rough, depending on who's playing, right? It can be rough. Uh, and I think that a lot of players over the, you know, just being a tennis player, you don't, you haven't really been taught to love the fans, the interactions, the signing autographs. A lot of them see it as a chore, right? Who do you think struggled the most over the past couple of years? One man, one woman, okay, with the COVID version of pro tenants. And that means no fans, no autograph, no vibe, right? No energy, um, everything the coach says, everybody can hear because there's no like noise to drown out the secret. You know what I mean? Who do you think struggled the most on the men's? Uh, this is, it's it's going to be a long list, Kamal. That's, so, <laughs> that's the only problem with this answer. You're making me pick one man and one woman. Um, okay, I'll, I'll, pick, I'll pick a man and woman, and I'll give you my reasonings behind them. But I, I think there are like another, you know, 30 I could put into this category. But um, on the men's side, I'm, I'm going to go with Monfils. Number one, because... Obviously, uh, this man's uh, 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 gasoline in his tank is the crowd. You know, if there was ever a person who fed off of the positivity and gave generously of his spirit to the crowd more than Monfils, you know, uh, uh, there are very few. So certainly that for those reasons. But let's go back to February of 2020, right when things shut down. Dubai duty-free open. He's playing Novak Djokovic. He has a bunch of match points multiple match points, loses a brutal three-setter. Novak is like, this guy is playing top five tennis. He, he is going to be in the top 10, top five this year. Like, that's how good he was playing. COVID hit him hard. And, you know, there was, there was an adjustment period. I mean, look, a, a ton of players, I've heard in interviews say how difficult the last two years was for them, not just with the sport, but we're all humans too. And everyone has struggled with this thing. But Monfils really did struggle. And now to see the way he started off this year, a little bit towards the end of last year, really finding himself again. Maybe the, the, the beautiful marriage that, that he had, you know, just recently also giving him that little extra energy. But I can see that coming back now. So I want nothing more than for him to really be able to recapture that and, and do some special things. So on the and the fans side, are coming back too. The fans are coming back. Even at 50%, that's helping. Yeah. And I think, look, it's different country to country, right? Yeah. So hopefully Miami will have full fans. Um, and it just, you know, different places, I, I hope it just gets better and better. Um, on the female side, gosh, I, you know, there are so many, but I'll, um, again, similar situation. I'm going to go with my sissy-in-law, Allison Risk, and, you know, talk a little bit about her because, again, beginning of 2020, she made the round of 16 in Australia. Um, I think she lost to Barty over there, but she was on a tear. She was like, she was top 20 in the world. 2019 was her best year by, by a long shot. She had beaten Barty at Wimbledon, lost that brutal match to Serena, 7-5 in the third in the quarters, had picked up titles and was really playing career tennis for her. I think she picked up a title on grass and at the end of the year. And then COVID hit and, you know, it was, it was a big adjustment. And, you know, coming back, you know, she struggled a lot. You know, she didn't, she didn't win very many matches throughout, uh, throughout the whole COVID period. And last year, end of the year, Picked up a title this year, beginning of the year, started with a final, lost to Maddie. So it feels like she's feeling brilliant again. I think the Olympics was great for her. It was a lifelong goal. She managed to go. It was, she felt so, so, so proud about it. And, uh, and I hope, you know, she's feeling good in capturing that too, because she again is like 
one of the most positive people I know and she needs that energy and to be able to give her spirit out to the crowd too. So I guess those are the two ones that come to mind. Well, I would say, I would agree with you on Monfils. Yeah. And I would say on the women's side, I would say Serena. Yeah, I well, think that of course. Of course. One, of course. one of the, if you look at US Open 2020, yeah. right? Plan well, actually. Probably yeah. plan well enough to win it. Yeah. No fans, right? right. Number one. And number two, the way that she travels. Like in order, you know, some people, I need to travel this way and have these people with me and have this type of setup to sort of perform. And some of the tournaments where you got to stay at a tournament hotel, right? The first time I ever saw Serena stay at a tournament hotel was French Open 2020. Wow. Right? And of course, she needs eight rooms, right? You got the nanny, the other, you got everything. So I would say she struggled because one of the things that I think um, people don't realize until you actually play her is how you're playing her plus everybody else in the stadium, no matter Absolutely what right. it goes to. You are playing her plus 20,000 other people who want to see her get, you know, the title. And I think without sort of that wind in her sails, yeah. it took away a little advantage for her, which you saw, you know, at four all deuce, yeah. right? At five, four deuce, right? When that person's just like, it's four all. And they like, everybody in here wants me to lose. I'm in Arthur Ashe Stadium and... I'm fighting the greatest player of all time and 20,000 other people want me to lose. And that is a terrible feeling that a lot of people have like crumbled under. But in those COVID years with the travel being a little bit depressed and not being able to set up and bring your entire team and your entourage and then without the 20,000 other people that help her get these wins, I think that hurt her, right? Given the fact that she doesn't have another five or six years, those two years were her opportunity to get that last one. Yeah, and if you want to add to that too, I mean, let's face it, Serena's, you know, uh, the greatest as it comes on every surface. But at this stage in her career, I think it's fair to say that Wimbledon certainly will, will you know, be her greatest shot to continue putting up slams. And to have missed Wimbledon that year, that's, that's a big blow to take out that, that opportunity. Not, not unlike this opportunity being taken away from Novak, at, right. at, you know, with that surface in Australia. It's you know, you don't have countless more opportunities. So yeah, absolutely. Those, those 20,000 people as you're serving for the match will let you know, by the way, just in case you're going to struggle with this ball toss, that's the greatest player of all time. This is going to be the biggest moment of your life. Don't forget that. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't let you go without touching on the Novak situation. Prior to it, I felt like if they don't give Novak the visa, and he doesn't play, Rafa wins, which he did. First of all, let me just say this. Medvedev up two sets to nothing. Up a, break, up a break at 3-2 and up 40 love. You tell me that won't be a game he will remember for the rest. Even if he goes on to win 10 more slams, he will forever remember 3-2, 40 love, up two sets love and, and Rafa it all. 100%. 100%. <laughs> So, so I felt like if they didn't give Novak the visa, you're going to give Rafa a two-slam advantage because Rafa gets Australian Open. And then it's like, oh, him next slam is French Open. You know, that's kind of like, I don't see him not winning that one, right? And I felt like it was a monumental and historic decision by the Australian government 
to not allow Novak to play. What's your take on the whole situation? Oof. Okay. I'll try to. It's so, it's so layered, Kamal. It's so layered. I gave my take on TC Live a couple of weeks ago. I got butchered on Twitter after that. <laughs> so I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you again. But now we got a little, I, I can go into a little bit more detail. Um, okay. First and foremost, let's talk about, you know, Novak just in general, this life decision. Everyone's entitled to make the decisions they want. And at the end of the day, there are always consequences to your decisions, right? You, you, you eat well, this is what you're going to look like. You eat badly, this is what you're going to look like. It's just, it's your choice, but that's just the way it is. So it's, it's tough for, you know, me to comment, oh, this is wrong for him, this, that. I don't know his health issues, this, that. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay away from that. And also, athletes at that level, the LeBrons, the Bradys, the this, that, I mean, every molecule of anything that goes into their body, they probably have 100 people that are examining it, right? And maybe he just didn't feel comfortable. I don't know. Having said that, you know what the situation is here, right? My thing is, he was given the okay by the Victorian government and Tennis Australia to be able to come. If you've gotten that okay, all you're doing is just, you know, doing what you, you've been told you're allowed to do. So I definitely don't fault him there, but here's where it gets gray. Because you're going so much against the grain and you're going into a country which has been the most locked down of any country in the entire world, that's, that's gonna cause, it's gonna ruffle some feathers and you just never know what'll happen. Now, once you understand all that, great. You get on the plane and go. I think the Australian government handled it wrong. I think he ended up being a victim in this situation. And he was, he was I mean, look, he didn't come off looking good at all. I mean, he, he, you know, when, when, when Pete Davidson's playing you and making a, making a, a farce of you on Saturday Night Live, you know, this thing is, you, you know this thing has gone too far. I think it was Pete Davidson. It was one of the characters. But look, I, I, I do definitely feel for him. I think he's got some hard, hard decisions to think about now coming up. But this was... All said and done, I think he, he, he was a victim in this. And of course, he, he had a hand uh, to play in it also, right? It wasn't, it wasn't you know, completely harmless, you know, his, his, his actions, but it, it's very unfortunate. He's one of the greatest, not tennis players, athletes that we've seen in sport. So I, I think it was, it, was, it was really sad to see it go down like this. Well, let me ask you this. We've seen over the past, let's say during uh, the pandemic, the BLM movement, we saw athletes, especially yeah. in America, take control of their league. We yeah. saw players during the bubble, not playing, right? Yeah. During the whole BLM thing, right? We've seen Naomi Osaka yeah. not do press and choose not to play, right? Do you think that this was at all sort of um, a way to sort of get athletes back in line, right? Because for a while, you know, you, th you could think of a handful of athletes in tennis that live, this is kind of like special rules for special people, right? <laughs> Rafa, Roger, Novak are on that list, right? There are special rules, Serena as well, for special people. Do you feel like there was a little bit of that where we're in control, um, We've seen these athletes because I and why I thought like the ATP was going to step in and like do something, right? You know, they they have a little bit of power, right? Do you do you think it was some of that? All complete opinion here, yep. right? 
Um, yes, but not in the way you're necessarily speaking. I don't necessarily think it was a shot against athletes. I think it was a shot against, it, it, I think it was a localized Australian shot against people who think they're above uh, what, what, what the government is trying to stipulate. You know, I mean, look, I, I, I don't know the details of it because I'm not up to date with Australian politics, but I do believe the prime minister was up for re-election coming up at some point soon. You're obviously trying to get the people on your side. The outcry was enormously uh, uh, unanimous against Novak not getting vaccinated because they've all had to suffer the consequences for the last two years. Right. So having said that, you know, the PM kind of did what, what served him best. I, I can't go into the reasons, whatever. This is just what it looks like from the outside. This guy's collateral damage and he looks great. He looks like a hero, you know, being, being made an example out of. No one's above the law. You know, it's tough to, I mean, the first thing that people are going to say is exactly what you said. If he's allowed it, oh, he doesn't have to get vaccinated. Oh, that's because he's Novak Djokovic. And, you know, that could be the consent around all the people over there. So it's, it's a tough one. And you know how it is. I mean, over, over the history of time, 10 people can do something. And sometimes one person gets made an example out of, you know, um, let me ask this, know, yeah. for him to have an uninterrupted next couple of years. Yeah. Do you think he's going to have to get vaccinated so he doesn't have to fight this fight for another 16 tournaments in 2022? Oh, he has to deal with this right now yeah. because it, it's, it's a worldwide acceptance that everyone's got to be vaccinated. You know, I mean, uh, you go to a restaurant in LA, you got to, you got to show the card right. on your phone. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's, I, I don't think there's any any getting around it here, um, especially with with the countries that are that are coming up. I mean, you look at you look at France, you look at Wimbledon, and look. I know Novak has proved he's he's been levels above the rest, but you can't just not play and then just show up at a slam. He's going to have to play other events and work his way in and feel comfortable and and do what he does to be Novak Djokovic. And I don't know how he's going to do that without overcoming this issue. Yeah, that's going to be tough. Yeah. This is this is one where he'll just have to just do it so he can so he can be done with it and focus on training because like we said, right. you know, this does take away from your preparation. Even the er- uncertainty of being able to compete, you can't even make a schedule yeah. because you can't plan on vaccination rules from country to country, right? right. You got to know I'm going to land, be able to play, be able to get in. Not like all these what ifs or I'm going to get a special exempt or anything like that. You've got to be able to make a schedule so you can train and plan around that schedule to have an uninterrupted 2022 and not let the gap widen between you and Rafa. I mean, Kamal, you said it. I mean, look, you've been on that side for so long. Players have their practices lined up for like two weeks in advance. Everything <laughs> is structured. So you can imagine Novak structure. He's, you know, six months in advance. He, he's, he's got to get this thing taken care of. But just, just touching on the, uh, the ATP of it that you brought up, the ATP is, yes, the governing body and all that. But this is, this is a bigger issue than sport. So when governments get involved, you know, the, the, the sport, the bodies of sport only have so much say. They can make a rule, sure. That's another thing. It hasn't been black and white. It's not, you're vaccinated, you can play. You're not vaccinated, you can't play. If it was that black and white, then Novak would have made a call. He would have not played Australia or he would have played. But it seems like we're moving to that black and white area. Hmm. Well, I look forward to it, man. We're going to 
We're going to see a lot of each other in 2022. I can't wait. I hope we, I hope we get on, you know, on camera sometime together, have a little fun, maybe grab a meal too. It'd be great. I know, TC, what you doing? You got to put me and Prakash <laughs> on camera together with no script, no producer in our ear. Just give us a topic and let us roll. We'll give you some sound bites. You might need that. You might need to put us on like a five second delay. Yeah, maybe like a five hour delay. delay but still. Right? Tell Hus <laughs> gonna go get a cup of coffee. Tell Bob to hold on to the edge of his seat. Tell Ross not to hit send on that email. Just, just hold on. Just, just give us a topic and hold on. Uh, we'll have some fun. Where am I? Where am I going to see you next? I'll see you out here uh, on the West Coast, right? Uh, I'll be there on Saturday, but I'll see you, uh, Indian Wells. Um, okay. And, you know, wherever else, you know, the, the world, the world is ever changing. Things yeah. are always coming up. You know what I mean? So, I'll be out and about this year. Fantastic! I can't wait, my man. Thank you for having me on. Hey, man. Thanks for coming on. This has been the Tennis.com podcast with my boy, the man, the myth, the muscles, Prakash <laughs> Amitraj. Enjoy it. Thank you. <laughs>